Church family, we live in a wild and crazy world. If you hadn't uh, lifted your head up and noticed recently, it was crazy last week. It's been crazy this week, and I've got a pretty safe prediction that it will be crazy this next week. But it brings us to a real simple, as far as what it means to be believers who live in light of Christ's resurrection, knowing that He is coming back. It brings us to a real practical question. How do we live? How do we live, move, and breathe? How do we follow Jesus Christ when it seems like we are living in exile in a hostile land? How do we do it? What does it look like? How do we play out? What is, what's necessary? What do we got to know? How, how do we choose to act? And it's precisely around that question that we're going to spend the next several weeks walking through the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel. So I invite you, if you got your Bibles, if you turn with me to the book of Daniel, if you don't have a Bible, I invite you to use the Pew Bible uh, in the Pew back in front of you. The page numbers for those Bibles are on the screen. But the book of Daniel, and we're going to pick up right at the very beginning in chapter 1. Daniel 1.1, 1, 1, here's what it says. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, came against, uh, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, let's pause there because there's some important background before we move forward that we all need to know and understand so we get what's, what's happening. If you rewind the clock just prior to this statement in the history of Israel, you go to 609 B.C. In 609 B.C., you have King Josiah on the throne of Israel. And Josiah as a king, he, he, is a, he comes to the throne as a boy and he will, he will lead the people of Israel. He will most more wholeheartedly uh, turn to the Lord than any king prior to him. And some you can even make an argument even more so than the great King David. He reinstitutes and, and brings back proper worship to Israel and to the people. He rejects the idolatry and the immorality and the wickedness of his father and grandfather and so many of the kings before him. And, and as he does this, God makes a promise to Josiah that though Israel's sin has gotten so bad that discipline is coming, it won't occur in Josiah's reign. And instead, under the reign of Josiah, Israel experiences a spiritual revival. They, are, they experience a time of prosperity and strength as a nation. And all of that would begin to come crashing down in 609 BC. You see, there were other things going on on the world stage. To the east of Israel, you had two different kingdoms, the kingdom of Babylon and the kingdom of uh, what we'd call the Median Persian kingdom. And they were beginning to put pressure over on kingdoms to Israel's southwest, Egypt. And Egypt and Babylon are going to be at odds with each other. And so King Josiah goes up and attempt to deal with this. And in battle, he will die fighting Egypt and Pharaoh Necho. And after this, you can imagine what this would be like for the Jews at that time, your beloved king, this time of stability, this time of prosperity, this time of revival, the one who's led it, all of a sudden you get news he's fallen into battle and, and the Jews act swiftly because they don't want Josiah's oldest son to come to the throne because he's pro-Egypt. And so they come in and they take his younger brother, Jehoahaz. I recommend don't ever name your child Jehoahaz, it doesn't roll off the tongue very easy. They put him on the throne because he's anti-Egypt, but here's the problem. He's going to last three months, 
Pharaoh Necho is going to come in, dispose him, take him back to Egypt, and he's going to set the oldest brother, Jehoiakim, on the throne. So this happens in 609 B.C. Four years will go by, and we find ourselves in 605 B.C., and here's what happens. Tensions have reached a boiling point. Babylon and Egypt are going to battle at Carchemish, and in this battle, Babylon, under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar, wins. Babylon now asserts itself as the dominant global power, and as they come back on this victory, Nebuchadnezzar will come to Jerusalem to make sure that the nation of Judah understands they now belong to Babylon. It's Babylon's way or the highway, so follow peacefully. Resistance will be met with opposition. It's in this time, in, in the third year of the reign. Now, Daniel's counting via the Babylonian system. If you were to count the Jewish system, much like our system, we'd say it's the fourth year of Jehoiakim's reign, but Babylon counts differently. That's how Daniel's counting. So in the third year, one year for ascendancy and then three more years of reigning, of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the new power in the world, has come against Jerusalem to besiege it. He surrounded it. They're now in his hands, but look. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hands, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And Nebuchadnezzar brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Now, if you ignore one simple phrase there, you're going to see what what those those Jews would have seen at that time, what, what the people of Judah would have seen. All of a sudden, having come off a time of spiritual revival, of of economic prosperity, of, of political stability, all of a sudden they find themselves surrounded by a hostile nation who marches straight into the kingdom to God's holy city. Not only do they march straight into God's holy city, but the king marches straight into God's temple, to his holy dwelling place, the place that that symbolizes where God in His holiness dwells and His his glory resides. The place which is at the center and core of all Jewish worship, of of sacrifice for a a sin. This This is the place. This is God's home. And Nebuchadnezzar walks right into God's home and plunders it. He doesn't take everything at this time. There will be two more subsequent invasions by Babylon, but he he takes some of God's possessions, the articles, the vessels of the temple. Not only that, but they watch as these people loaded up with God's vessels take them out to bring them back to the temple of their gods. It would look in every way to human eyes watching that the God of Israel just lost badly. Not only has the God of Israel lost badly, but a century prior, the, the, the Assyrians, under the leadership and power of their gods, beat the northern kingdom of Israel. And now Babylon, who defeated the Assyrians, now comes in and so their gods are greater than the Assyrians. Well, that's, there you go. That's why Babylon, their gods are greater. It seems like God has lost. But did you notice the key statement of verse 2? The Lord gave. Now, here's the reality right off the bat of Daniel. What, what will be 
an experience for Daniel and his friends, what would be to appearance to those watching, to look like God has lost is in fact not God losing, but it's God winning. Because here's the other background you need to understand on this passage. When you rewind the clock way back and God makes a covenant with his people of Israel at Sinai and then reaffirms it 40 years later as his people are getting ready to go into the promised land in the book of Deuteronomy, God spells out clearly in the book of Deuteronomy. This is what it's going to mean, Israel, for you to be my people. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to provide for you. Here's, here's all the things, but, but you have an obligation to, to walk with me, to follow me. Here's the standards. Here's the system of sacrifice to deal with your sin. And if you choose to reject my ways, my character, who I am, and you choose to go off and persist and walk habitually in disobedience, here's what I promise to do. And he spells it out right there in, in Deuteronomy chapter 28. He spells it out. I'm going to bring destruction. I'm going to rip you away from the land. I'm going to send you into exile. This will be the, the ultimate nuclear option to break you of your pride and sin and re restore you back to a right relationship with me. And he spells out, not only does he spell out this is what's going to happen, but a few chapters later in Deuteronomy, he says, and here's how you can fix the problem. Because you can fix the problem by repenting, by turning to me now. By walking with me, by abandoning your sin. So in fact, God is not losing. God is, God is being faithful exactly to his word. The problem was not the power and strength and glory of God. The problem is what 2 Chronicles 36 says. It says, the Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to the people of Israel, specifically Judah, through his messengers, the prophets, again and again, because he had pity, compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers. They despised his words. They scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people. There was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians. For decades, God sent the prophets who clearly called the people of Israel back to a right relationship with God, and they perpetually spit in the face of God. And had finally arrived at a point where the only way to bring His people out of sin and back, the only way to, to break the hardness of their hearts was to bring the ultimate discipline, which was to deliver His people into the hands of Babylon, far from God not being in control. God is precisely in control. And here's what he does. Here's what, here's what happens. Here's what he allows. Says, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths, be, be akin to uh, anywhere in between 12 and 16 years old in our eyes, so teenagers, in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, who showed intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court, literally the strength to stand in the king's court. And he ordered, uh, he ordered them to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, Chaldeans being a, another term, an old term in Scripture for, uh, for Babylon. Here's, so here's what else happens. They don't, they don't just plunder the vessels of God's house. They're going to take the best and the brightest they're going to go to the royalty and to the nobility, to those who are educated, the elite, the influencers, the future leaders of society, and they're going to plunder 
the ones who look the best, the ones who demonstrate that they're going to plunder the best and the brightest. And they're going to remove them out of their land, away from their families. They're going to take them back. And just as they plunder the vessels of God's house and put them in the house of their God, so they plunder the best of Judah's future leaders and they put them in what will be a complete and total uh, university uh, quality education, indoctrination into all the ways of Babylon. They're going to teach them They're going to teach them a variety of things ranging from agriculture to architecture, astrology, astronomy, law, mathematics, their language. They're going to bring in the teachings of their false religion, how things work, the various things. Not only this, they're going to, look at this verse 5, the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Here's what else is, not only are they going to completely and totally train them and instruct them and bring them up in all of the ways of Babylon, they're going to tether them in complete dependence upon the king. They're going to show them favor by the king. They're going to eat from, from the, be- the best of the best. You're now under the control of the most powerful empire and you are eating directly from the most powerful man and the most powerful empire from his very supply of food. Not only that, but it's not going to be quick. It's going to be a three-year training ground, the end of which when they have to stand up and defend their dissertation, the judge is the king himself. But it doesn't end there. If that was not thorough enough to take the best and brightest of Judah and transition them uh, to, to to being loyal to Babylon, look what happens here. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, then the... So here's these four, these four teenage Jewish boys. Daniel, whose name means God is my judge. Hananiah, whose name means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael says, who is what, whose name means who is what God is. Azariah, Yahweh will help. Here are four young men whose very names declare the glory and greatness of the one true God who have now been plucked from their families, plucked from their home, who've been taken and and thrown into a foreign land and a a foreign language, dependent now upon the king to be completely and totally trained and brought about in the ways of Babylon. And if that's not enough, then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Names which means, which mean lady or bell protect his life. Names which mean command of a coup. Names which mean who is what a coup is. Names which mean servant of Nebo. Names which every one of them reference the authority and power of, an, of a Babylonian deity. Now understand in, in old culture, and it's still true in our culture, names matter. No one likes being routinely called by a name that's not their name. Why names matter? Names are personal. All the more so in Old Testament times. Names had meaning. Those meanings mattered. These were important. So when they come in and they're brought in and their names are changed, this is the ultimate way to say, you belong to us now. You can forget who you were and what you were brought up in you are now ours. Now catch what has happened. You and I would expect these young men, they have just watched 
They have just watched their homeland come under the occupation and rule of a foreign kingdom, which by the way would be wild. Even though the people of Judah were not faithful in following God, part of their sin was their arrogance and thinking, we can do whatever we want because God, the one true God, said this is our land and he'll never let us be conquered. So all of a sudden, that, that understanding's shattered. They've watched his temple plundered. They've now been dropped into a place entirely new. You and I w- might expect, having seen the fall of Jerusalem and now the beauty of Babylon, separated from their families, given new names, thrown into a new place, you might expect despair. Or maybe we might expect bitterness, anger, maybe anger towards Babylon, maybe anger towards God. Maybe we might expect to use a more modern phrase, a deconstruction of everything they ever thought and moved, but that's not what we find. Look what happens. But Daniel made up his mind. He came to a firm, convicted resolve in his heart. And by heart, we mean that place where one's thoughts and volition and will and emotions all come together to drive how we act. That's the biblical idea of heart. He came convicted in his heart, made up his mind, resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Far, far from exhibiting a despair or an anger or a bitterness or a deconstruction, all of a sudden we find Daniel confronted with eating food that for whatever reason, now listen, you can ask a lot of questions, you can do a lot of research. Some will say, well, the food was offered to idols, so that's why they didn't eat the meat in that. Well, likely the fruits and the vegetables were offered to idols too. There's a lot of different things you can go round and round about. Here's what the point is. Whatever the food was being offered by the king was going to cause Daniel in eating it, in drinking it, to act in a way that would be wrong before the holiness of his God. And rather we're going, well, it's, it's just food and drink. It's, it's, just, it's not that big a deal. Nobody's going to know. Everybody's doing it. Why should I really even take God that serious? Because I, it doesn't seem like he's really up to, to doing anything and moving. Rather than all the different excuses and temptations that would flood his mind, well, if I don't do this, my career's gonna be threatened. And you know what? Nebuchadnezzar, he is a hothead of anger. He could, he could kill me anytime. In spite of all of that, here's in the heart of this young man, having seen God's discipline fall upon his people for their refusal to take God serious, at God's word. He determines in his heart, you can change my name, but it doesn't matter what you call me, it doesn't change who I am. You can put all sorts of textbooks in front of me and try to drive whatever ideologies and theologies and philosophies you want into my mind, but as long as I remain abiding in, in the one true faith, it's not gonna change who I am. But, but when you ask me to, to partake of things where I am now volitionally sinning, I draw the line, I won't do it. And rather than causing a riot and raising a fuss and kindly, politely, being at peace as much as it depends upon him, approaches his supervisor and says, I don't don't want to eat this food. It's going to violate my conscience. Now watch what happens. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. 
God granted a sympathy. It wasn't Daniel who brought it about. All of a sudden, we've seen God sovereign acting over the affairs of the nations, but all of a sudden, we get deeply personal. God who says his eyes scour the earth going to and fro to greatly aid those whose heart is completely his. Here his eyes lock in on Daniel, and God moves to give compassion to his request. Now the commander of the official said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who's appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the, to the king. Here's what he says. I feel for you, Daniel. I'm with you. I'd love to do it. But if, if you don't look good, if, if it looks like you're, you're, you're a little too frail because you're not eating all the protein, you're not packing down all the fatty foods we're going to give you, I'm going to get killed and I'm, just, I'm straight up afraid. Daniel doesn't give up. He said to the overseer, so if this is the commander who's over all of them, he goes to someone under the commander and he says, here, let's try this. Please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. And by vegetables, we mean anything that comes from seeds. So it might be literal vegetables, could be fruits, some grains. He says, let us eat this and, and drink water. Then our appearance will be observed in your presence. And the appearance of the youths who are eating, you can compare us to those eating the king's food and deal with us accordingly. So the commander listened to them in the matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better. They were fatter than all the youths who'd been eating the, the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and wine they were to drink and keep giving them vegetables. And all of a sudden, we see God intervene. Daniel says, hey, I'm not going to, hey, let's try this test. Just test that and let's see. And God continues this favor. He allows them to look more healthy than all of them. And so in this favor that God grants them with those who would be hostile, he gives them favor and they continue to walk out in obedience to the Lord. And here's what it says about these four youths. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kind of visions and dreams. Here's what it says. Not only has God sovereignly acted to provide and to protect them, but he has now sovereignly acted to gift them, to equip them in ways that will directly impact how they can display his glory in a hostile land and how they can stand for the good of the community around them. It gives them a, a, a supernaturally endowed wisdom and knowledge and intelligence into Daniel. Daniel now has the ability to understand dreams. And this is what happens at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them at the end of those three years, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and out of all of those he talked to, no one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the soothsayers, all the mag magicians and, and priests who were in his realm. And then it says, Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king, some 65 plus years later. Here's what it says. Here, here comes this moment. These four youths, Daniel, in, in his own heart, having seen everything he ever held to obliterated, watching the world change in ways that he's never imagined that are unknown in his lifetime, rather than questioning God, doubting God, or going against God, here, here he's approached with something some would say is, is so little and, and minute. Just eat the king's food. It's going to look good. It looks good. I promise you it tastes just as good as it looks. 
Everybody's doing it, don't cause a ruckus stone. And he goes, no, I will not violate the holiness of God in my life. And how he sets out to honor God, and as he sets out to honor God, God honors his faithfulness by opening doors of favor, and it culminates in God so gifting these young men that when they go before the king, they're better than all the rest of the people. That would include all of the people Babylon has to offer, as well as all the other people they took from those Jewish royalty and nobles. And God provides, and this sets then the basis for what will be the rest of the book. This sets the basis. Here God establishes an element of favor that we'll see throughout the rest of that book, but we also understand as we work through the book, that favor of God won't keep them from danger. So what are we to do with this? Well, understand, church family, We live in days and times where we are seeing things happen in the world, watching things happen in culture that for most of us are unprecedented in our lifetimes. We watch as to hold firmly to to an inerrant view of of what God's Word says is all of a sudden not just disagreeable but is, is a threat. And we come and ask the question, how, how are we to walk faithfully with Jesus in light of his resurrection and preparation of his return? How are we to walk living in the midst of a hostile world? How are we to walk? We are to walk in such a way that we know and understand and rest in the sovereignty of our God, the God over the affairs of the nations, over the realities of our life, and in in response to understanding that truth, then we resolve in our hearts to honor the holiness of God in every way. It's real simple. It's what the passage is. Because God is the one true God who is sovereign over the affairs of the world, over people, we must resolve in our hearts to honor His holiness and to seek out and live in His favor. This is what it comes down to. Church family, God is the God. It's, it's missed in our English Bibles because it doesn't translate, it would translate in a way that's confusing in English. But every time Daniel in, 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 the, in the original language writes God, referring to our God, he always uses the definite article, the God. Because he's trying to make a point as he's writing there in Babylon and later Persia in a pluralistic society. Church family, understand today, our God is not a God, our God is the God. Hero Israel, hero church, the Lord's your God, the Lord is one. He is the one true God. And, And not only is he the one true God, but he's the one who reigns sovereignly over the affairs of the world. Church family, what seems like the world spinning out of control might actually be God faithfully carrying out the word of his covenant. What appears like God losing might actually be God winning. The fortune of kings and the affairs of men are subject to his authority. This is what Paul says standing on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. He says, listen, God doesn't dwell in any house made by human hands because God's too big for that. He doesn't need anything that humans can offer. In fact, he has determined the boundaries and the appointed times of every nation in the world. Listen, church family, there is nothing happening in our world today that is somehow taking apart taking place apart from God's knowledge and God's working. I don't don't know that I can tell you what all God is up to, but what I can tell you is right now when you look out at everything going on in our world, good, bad, crazy, ugly, 
God is up to something. God is up to something that has to do with the faithfulness of his word. God is up with something that has to do with the redemption of any who would place faith in Jesus Christ. God is up to something that is going to culminate, guaranteed no matter who opposes to his return. God is up to something. He is sovereign in his covenant. He will work out discipline in the lives of his people, and that may even be part of what God's up to in the world today. And maybe that part of, part of what God was up to in the life of Israel, the destruction and calamity that was coming upon them was for sin that they refused to think they were guilty of. Maybe in our lives personally or corporately, there may be sin we don't think we're guilty of and we've been so blinded to it for so long in the Lord's cries that the Lord's gonna introduce some hard circumstances, not because he's losing, but because he's faithful to the word of his covenant. By the way, Hebrews 12, which says, out of his love, he disciplines his children. God is sovereign over the affairs of nations, but He's not only sovereign over the affairs of nations, He's sovereign on behalf of His individual children. Did you see it in the passage? All of, all of Judah is under God's discipline. God is sovereignly orchestrating geopolitical affairs to bring about His discipline, but here, here are just a few teenagers, and if you're a student, pay just as much attention as the adults. Here are a few nobodies on the scale of the world But when who the world looks at and says, you're a bunch of nobodies, you may be some future superstars, God looks down and says, you want to be faithful to follow me? Boom. Here's my provision. Here is my protection. Here is my favor. Here is my leading. Here is my guidance. Here. If only you four teenage boys and all of Judah are looking to me, great. I don't care how old you are, you are looking to me and my eyes are locked on you. God's sovereign in the affairs of individuals, church family, brothers and sisters, any one of us who sets to seek, who, se who sets our heart, resolves in our heart that we're going to honor the Lord's holiness, understand, we do it on the basis of knowing God's eyes really do look to greatly aid, to provide, to protect for any one of his children that says, Lord, I'll draw the line in the sand where you draw it and I'll stand where you stand. Don't let me move an inch. Not only that, but he provides giftings. He doesn't just provide his protection, but he provides these young men with giftings, giftings that he intends and, and you find them faithful to put into use as the book goes on, giftings through which God is going to display his glory, disciplines which, through which God is going to show people in Babylon, even in the highest of courts, that he is in fact the one true God, even if they don't want to yield their culture to him. He gives them gifts. And Understand, church family, that God's sovereignty and over the affairs of men and in our lives, far from being fatalistic, understand the reality here. God is sovereign, and God also gives people choices. God's sovereignty means it doesn't matter what choice people ultimately make, his, his purposes, he'll bring them about. It doesn't matter if the whole world decides today to follow him or the whole world decides today to reject him. He's coming back. Why? Because he's sovereign. But he does give us choices. The reality is Judah wouldn't be taken over by Babylon if they had ever made the choice to repent. Vice versa, Daniel wouldn't have known the provision and power and protection and, and gifting of God if he had made the choice to capitulate. 
Listen, there, there is a mystery. You go, well, pastor, how does all that work together? How can God know all things and be outside of time and be sovereign, but we have a real kind of, a type of free will and choice. And listen, church family, the, the, God chose not, in the, not to, 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 to lay out in the scriptures what that looks like at the atomic level and how it all merges together. And that doesn't mean he's hiding something. It doesn't mean that, well, I just can't buy that, pastor. Why, why would your God not do that? Your God must, must not be true. Well, is a movie director not true when they take out certain scenes from the movie because they, they deem them unnecessary for you to get the point? No. God knows what we need to know. He's given us everything we need to know. And here's what he says. He is sovereign. And his sovereignty should inspire and well up a confidence within us to resolve ourselves to follow him. He also makes it clear we have choices. Which leads us to the choice if we really understand that God is in control. It doesn't resign us to some kind of despair or fatalism or decide, well, God's in control. It just doesn't matter. No, it matters. And we must make a choice to resolve ourselves to honor his holiness. Romans chapter 12 says this, after 11 chapters of unpacking the reality of of what the gospel, the gospel message that will save anyone who believes, who will receive by grace and receive through faith. The first thing he says is, therefore I urge you brothers by the mercies of God, present yourselves as living sacrifice, lay yourself on the altar, completely surrendered. And he says this, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world but be transformed, made different, altered by the renewing of your mind. He says, resolve, Daniel resolves. How do we resolve? We resolve by resisting the, the conformity to this world and instead we, we allow the Holy Spirit working within us who is actively conforming and transforming us into the image of Christ. We allow that work to impact how we think, how we reason how we will and make choices. We allow it, as we resolve, it means not being, as, as we take resolve to not be conformed in the image of the world, it's gonna mean being transformed by the renewing of our mind, why? Because understand, church family, when, when the world gives you the king's food, it's gonna look good. And let's just be honest, when the world gives you the king's food, whatever it may be, there's a high probability it will taste good. And by good, I mean it will be pleasurable. It will make you feel something that you're, you deem positive. Not only that, it'll enable you to fit in. Everybody around you's eating the same food. It's gonna seem costless, it's gonna be easy, and it's gonna be attractive. And we find the king's food, if you will, all over the place, maybe in the form of materialism, where we allow money labor, success, fame, influence, to drive how we use our time and resources, how we order our values and priorities. It might be sexual immorality, anything outside of God's design for sexuality, one man, one woman, and the covenant of marriage for life. It might be Something naturalistic, you say, well, naturalistic, most of us wouldn't affirm that. We know there's a God, you're right. Most of us wouldn't affirm the philosophy of naturalism, but many of us live like there is no supernatural God working in this world. It might be in the way of our ethics, where God calls us to kindness. The world tells us, hey, man, have that short temper, be angry. 
That guy cuts you off on the road, go cut him right back off. Where you live without grace or mercy, where you know what, it's just, it'd be really inconvenient to tell the whole truth, so why don't you just tell that little white lie? It's okay, it's just one, don't worry about it. Dishonesty is okay. Your unforgiveness, you know, that person really did hurt you. It doesn't matter that what you did to Jesus is worse than what anybody could do to you, and Jesus forgives you. No, no, you just, you hold right there. There's all sorts of ways the king's food can come to us. It's anything that asks us in big or small ways to yield his holiness on the platter of human pleasure. It's anything that would make me direct and act in sin and understand it will look good and it might even feel good in the moment. But it is costly because it will demand a full allegiance and it will bring and rot our hearts with a cancer of death. Listen, the same king, Nebuchadnezzar, who would give his food is the same king who on a moment's notice would throw his subjects in the furnace. But the true king who preserves and provides who protects, who gifts, who guides those whose hearts will seek Him, the true King, who will do it all through hardship. He is the one who will fellowship in the fire and deliver from the lion's den. Listen, church family, it's going to require, if we're going to be resolved, it's going to require a willingness to stand out and walk alone. Scripture says we are sojourners living in exile on this earth. We walk as ambassadors of heaven to an unholy world. We are not home. We're not supposed to feel like we fit in. But some of us feel too much at home because we're, quite frankly, really drunk on the king's wine. If we're going to be resolved... It means we're going to stand out. There's got to be a willingness to stand out and walk alone. It's going to mean that as we do that, we don't do it with some feeling of puffed up pride and arrogance towards the world. It's going to mean doing it with a respectfulness. Back to Romans 12 says, as much as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Do you notice Daniel and the guys, they don't come in and and guns ablaze and you better give it. They treat these people with respect, with kindness. As we see as time goes on in Daniel, he has a real relationship even with Nebuchadnezzar. See this example throughout Scripture from the Hebrew midwives of Exodus 1 to the life of Jesus to the apostles after. If we're going to be resolved, it's going to mean seeking to walk with peace as much as it depends upon us. It's going to demand a confidence in the power of God. That's why all of this is built on the knowledge we've got to accept God for who He is. He is the one true God who is sovereign over the affairs of man. And if we will really understand that, it produces a confidence where we, here's the reality, you cannot live in this world and wall yourself off from the indoctrination it wants to give you. There's no possible way. Now, it's not me saying we don't take steps to guard and protect. Sure, yes, we take steps to guard and protect, but you cannot escape everything this world will tempt you with if you are still in this world. And it doesn't matter what the world wants to change our name and call us, it doesn't change who we are in Christ. It doesn't matter what the world wants to feed us and tell us and and drain into our brain, this is what's really true, this is theology, this is philosophy, this is ideology. It doesn't matter what the world wants to give. If you and I are rooted in the one true faith, the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us, you and I can hear it all day long and go lie, 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 and we can be firm and cemented in our relationship with Christ. 
and we can walk out the other side, whether the other side is a great awakening in our world or whether the other side is going home to be with the Lord or whether the other side is looking up as the Lord comes down on the white horse, whichever would come first, we can walk out on that other side holy and blameless because of the power of the one who lives within who is transforming us is far greater than the one of this world who seeks to conform us. But we must be resolved. And being resolved is going to mean being driven by a transformed mind. It's going to mean being willing to stand alone. It's going to mean seeking to walk at peace with others. It's going to mean being confident on who God is. He is the one true God, the holy God, the God who is sovereign over the affairs of men. It's going to mean putting into practice exactly what Psalm 46 says when it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains slip into the heart of sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake with selling pride, though the nations make an uproar, though the kingdoms totter, be still. Cease striving. No, I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Church family, the Lord of hosts is with us. The Lord, of, the Lord God of Jacob is our stronghold. And if we're going to walk faithfully with Jesus today, then we must be confident of who he is. We must accept him for how he says he is. And we must resolve in our hearts that because of the greatness and glory of who He is, because of the majesty and wonder of who He is, that we will allow Him to draw the lines in the sand in our life, that we would stand where He stands, how He stands, where He stands, when He stands, until He returns. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we look to You in this time of response. You and you alone know where every one of our hearts are at. There are some in this room or watching online who very likely do not actually know you. May their hearts be open to hearing the kindness and love of your conviction so that they might come to know you. Father, there are brothers and sisters in this room who are discouraged and despairing because it just seems like things keep going from bad to worse to worse. Father, may they be encouraged today. You are in control. And you don't call us to know what all you're doing, but you do call us to walk faithfully with you. There's some of us in this room, Lord, we are. We are full and drunk on everything this world has given us to eat. And there needs to be repentance in our life. Jesus, you know where every one of us are at in this room. May we clearly, clearly heed your conviction and respond as you lead us to respond. You're worthy and we look to you. It's in your name I pray.